Welcome to Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and each episode I will share with you a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. Here we are in week two of our warm weather ectoparasite series, and it is quite toasty outside, so I'm not recording in my blanket tent that I've been recording in in the last few weeks, so we'll see how the sound sounds. As a short reminder of where we are, ectoparasites are really just external parasites. They're parasites that uh, live on the outside of our bodies, and they don't necessarily live their whole life on our skin or our fur, but in many cases, they're just hopping on, biting us, stealing our blood, and then leaving. Last episode, we talked about everyone's favorite insect, the mosquito, and how it is the deadliest animal. And now this week, I am coming at you with a critter that is going to leave you with that gross, creepy, crawly, heebie-jeebie feeling. Ticks. Going outside is great. Going on hikes is great. Bird watching in fields, also great. But not having to worry about ticks is one of a few reasons I do enjoy that my field work is on a boat. Best way to avoid ticks? Get on a boat and drive for a few miles and boom, no ticks. Just kidding, a little bit. There are some good ways to avoid getting ticks and tick bites without having to hop in a boat and drive onto the ocean. And we'll talk about some tick avoiding tips at the end and how to avoid getting bit. In the meantime, join me as we talk about how one species of ticks is causing moose a problem by infesting them in the thousands. So yes, ticks. Ticks are actually arachnids, they are not insects, and so they have eight legs as adults. Fun fact, for no extra cost to you, in the nymph stage they do sometimes have six legs, but as adults they have all eight. So this puts them as more closely related to spiders than our mosquito friends last week. There are over 800 species of tick around the world, some estimates say at least 850, And within the United States, we have about 90 species of ticks. Ticks are grouped into two families, Ixodidae, the hard ticks, and then Argacidae, the soft ticks. The two families have somewhat different life cycles. The hard ticks have some variety in their life cycle and may have one, two, or three hosts throughout their life. The soft ticks, the Argacidae, always have multiple hosts. And then throughout their life, they have seven different nymph stages called instars. So with each instar, the nymph is going to get a little bit bigger and look more and more like the adult. So as most people uh, familiar with ticks and their tendency to bite will know, ticks consume blood and that's just what they eat. So it's not like mosquitoes where it's only the females, it's all ticks. On one hand, though, the males do tend to die after mating. Mating tends to be a rough time for a lot of arachnids. So the females tend to be responsible for more bites than the males, since there just tend to be more of them around. When looking for their host, the tick will go on a fun little journey called questing. When a tick begins a quest, they crawl up to the top of tall grass or some shrubs, and then they sit there and wait with their front legs extended, poised to give their unsuspecting host a hug to grab onto them. However high up the ticks go when questing will depend on their host. 
So if the host is a mouse, they'll stay pretty low to the ground. But if their host is a moose, whew, I don't know if you can hear the neighbor's kids screaming out there, but whew, rough day over there, I guess. Um, so if the tick's host is a moose, they'll need to get up into the shrubbery more. To bust some apparent tick myths, ticks can't jump or fly at all. They don't have that mechanism in their bodies. So they can't jump on people or really fall from trees onto a host. Uh, so they're really just grabbing on from the grass or whatever shrubbery is nearby. Some ticks won't begin their quest until they detect the presence of their preferred host. They'll stay in hiding until then. And they detect their host through many of the same ways that mosquitoes find a host. So they'll be looking for the breath and the CO2 that comes from their breath, the carbon dioxide, as well as body odor, body heat, vibrations through their host walking around, and all that sort of good stuff. So once the tick is on a host, they're going to find a good bite site and latch on. A smart tick will find a nice protected spot with a good blood supply. So this would be like along the insides of joints, armpits, um, with people or scalps since there's, you know, a good bit of hair there so they're not going to be easily detectable. So other areas that may be hard to detect. Not very smart ticks or not very bright ticks, like some that I've had, will bite areas with less blood supply in more detectable areas, like on your kneecap. There are some tick-borne diseases. Um, they are not often transmitted until the end of a blood meal, so really just when the tick is so full that just whatever bacteria they're carrying are just going to get uh, ejected out. So for the hard ticks, like dog ticks, they can feed for hours to days, so oftentimes if you detect a tick within that first 24 hours, chances are you're not going to have had anything transmitted to you, and obviously the earlier you detect the tick, the less likely it is. With soft ticks, on the other hand, they typically feed for less than an hour, so they're pretty fast, and there's a much shorter window where transmission can occur in, and that can sometimes be in about one minute. So if you're not going to spot them as quickly, there's a much higher chance they're going to pass something on. So there are quite a few tick-borne diseases we could be talking about. One of the common ones, especially in the Northeast, is Lyme disease. Um, but I did focus pretty hard on the mosquito-borne illnesses last week, and I didn't want to talk about diseases for two weeks in a row. So instead, I'm going to talk about the how these tiny little ticks can bring down a whole moose. So if you've never seen a moose or are not aware, moose are pretty big animals, as in could feasibly drive a small car under a full-grown adult moose. And yet, one species of tick is the leading cause of death for young moose and can decrease the ability of an adult moose to have more baby moose. So for people, we don't really have to worry too much about this species of tick in particular, this isn't just like a whole bunch of deer ticks laughing on, latching on or something like that. The tick responsible for bothering the moose to this degree is the winter tick, sometimes called the moose tick. This tick is a one-host sort of tick, so it's really only going to target moose and some related things like deer and elk. And it's found across North America, north of the Mexican border, in areas where moose are common. 
there's a pretty dense moose population through Maine and around New England, so it's going to be present here, and then also some areas out west and across Canada. So wherever you have a moose population, this is going to be a pretty common tick within that population, particularly in the Maine moose population. Fortunately, it's not associated with spreading any sort of disease, but the problems do come in because they latch onto the moose by the thousands. So in late spring, the winter tick females will lay up to 4,000 eggs that then hatch in late summer around the moose breeding season, when the larvae will then quest for a host. These ticks can sense the vibrations from a moose host from up to 20 meters away, so this gives them plenty of time to climb up to the vegetation and then interlock their legs, which is a really important part for these ticks because when the moose brushes by just one tick, all of the surrounding ticks are going to go with it. So then just that one tick and all of its siblings are then going to have dinner on this one moose. So this, since this tick only has one host, the larval, nymph, and adult stage are all going to be feeding on just this one moose. So once they find their moose, they're attached for life, or at least until it's time to detach and find a mate. So what does this mean for that poor unsuspecting moose? Of course, this many ticks will bring on things like skin irritation and hair loss from the increased grooming effort to try and remove all of the ticks but the high number of ticks can also eat a high enough um, quantity or large enough quantity of blood in order to cause anemia in the, in the moose, so that's some pretty serious blood loss. Fortunately, for most moose anyway, um, the survival rate is pretty high, so most moose are going to survive, and adult moose have a 90% survival rate, which is pretty good. However, many moose, um, once they have been infested with the ticks, may be malnourished, especially towards the end of winter, because they are going to be spending a significant amount of time grooming instead of finding food. An infected moose can spend over two hours a day grooming trying to get rid of the ticks, when most moose are usually only going to spend about five minutes or less. So that is a pretty significant amount of time that's not being spent finding food that an, an, um, that an uninfected moose would be spending towards food finding. So if most adult moose survive except for just losing some body weight, where is the problem? So the problems come in when the calves become infected or when a, pro when a pregnant cow has a high tick load. The calves are at a disadvantage because they're smaller and tend to have less body fat stored up than adult moose for when winter comes around. Between not having as much energy stored up and being smaller, they oftentimes just can't replace the lost blood fast enough and lose too much body weight to survive through to the spring when they have such high tick loads. Infected baby moose may lose up to a third of their body weight, which is for them around 100 pounds. They'll also be spending more time grooming, which brings with it the loss of hair. So between that hair loss their calorie deficit, the loss in body weight, and the blood loss from all of those ticks eating literally all of their meals, they often die from exposure to the elements. For a pregnant cow, a pregnant moose, it does tend to be a bit of a better outcome, at least for the individual adult moose, but less so for the baby moose. 
When an infected, um, with an infected pregnant moose, um, not only do they have the growing moose baby to give their nutrients to, they also have a thousand or so ticks stealing their blood. So that's a lot of critter to have to give all of your energy to. So a lot of times once spring rolls around, the mother cow can be so anemic and malnourished that while she may survive, her newborn calf either may not survive um, pretty quickly or may not have been provided the nutrients it needs and may not last throughout the full year. So what are some things we can do for our moose population here? So while uh, milder winters are allowing the winter ticks to survive throughout the winter, um, we do have plenty of moose research across North America that has shown that areas with lower moose population densities have fewer winter ticks, which makes sense. If there aren't as much of the host to feed the parasite, there won't be as many parasites around. Perfect. With this information, we can conduct studies on particular populations to see how reducing the population will impact ticks. This may seem a bit counterintuitive. If you want to save a population, wouldn't you want to not kill them? But if, on the other hand, if we can lower the tick population, then the moose population will be a healthier one. Um, and then there will be fewer ticks. They'll be able to bounce back, have healthier babies, all sorts of great things. Time will tell if it will help and research, but if it does, then I'm sure the moose population would greatly enjoy having fewer ticks. So now as promised, uh, some tick prevention tips to round this out for us people. So with humans, we can't really just reduce the population density of people to manage ticks that feed on us along with their hosts that is generally considered unethical. So what we can do is prevent ticks and tick bites so that we don't get Lyme disease or the red meat allergy or just not having to deal with all those creepy crawlies. So one way we can prevent ticks is to one, just to try and be mindful of where the ticks are going to be. So then we can one, avoid them if possible, or two, up the amount of bug spray. Because of questing, ticks usually live in areas with tall grass, brush, vegetation, so also wooded areas, particularly on the edges of woodlands. So where the woods are kind of meeting people's lawns or fields, that sort of thing. If you're going on a walk in the woods, it can help to stay in the middle of the trail where it's more clear in order to avoid brushing up against the plants. In terms of bug spray, you can spray your clothes with a permethrin, a permethrin spray or the deep bug repellent. Those two tend to be the most effective against ticks. Um, tucking your pants into your socks and your shirt into your pants, so just tucking all of your clothes in can also help to keep the ticks from crawling onto your skin. It gives you a bigger chance to get them off before they find skin. Um, and then once you do come back from, come back inside from being out and about, that's a great time to check your clothes, change your clothes, and take a shower. I've heard of some people using a lint roller over their clothes to get the ticks off, but you can also chuck them in a dryer on high in order to kill any ticks that might be there. You can, showering will also help to remove any unattached ticks that did find their way to your body, and it gives you a great time to do a full body tick check. And of course, some natural ways to help discourage ticks in your yard or your area that you like to exist in. 
So the goal here is to discourage deer and mice since they like the grassiness of our yards and with uh, the fragmented woodlands, our yards end up being some pretty nice habitat for them. So sure, you can apply pesticides to kill all of the ticks, like with mosquitoes, um, but that is not preferred, so we'll give you some other options. We will, once again, plug growing a native wildflower garden or a butterfly garden in your yard. Some native plants are resistant to deer. The deer don't like to eat them, so they'll, they won't attract deer to your yard. Um, and the flowers will also provide some additional pollinator habitat. As an extra added bonus, some of the insects that may be attracted to the flowers, like wasps, may also eat the ticks. There are plenty of bug predators that are also pollinators, so attracting them in could be beneficial. So get out there, tuck your pants in your socks, and plant some wildflowers. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and be sure to come on back for the next episode in a couple of weeks. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, and you can also find us on Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, or really just about wherever you listen to podcasts. There are a couple of ways to help support this podcast. You can share us with someone you know that could use some more animal facts in their life, which we all know is everybody. And then uh, for about the same price as some super snazzy sloth ankle socks, you can become a patron on Patreon at Quirky Creepy Freaky Pod. And if you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, send it on in at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com and it may just make it into an episode. Audio editing and recording is done by me, and the intro music was created by Kaylee Strait. Thank you for listening.